Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Monday, August 15th, 2022. I hope everybody had a good weekend. We're going to jump right into it to get you caught up on the news. The top story at Antiwar.com, Russia is urging for the IAEA to visit the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So we've seen Russian officials calling for the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, that's the UN's nuclear watchdog, to send inspectors to the Zaporizhia power plant. It's They say it's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Russia has controlled it since March. If you remember early on in the war, there was fighting around the plant. And now in recent weeks, we've seen there's been a lot of shelling. The plant has come under attack and it's still operating operating um so it's a very dangerous situation but ukraine is blaming russia for bombing this power plant that russia controls it doesn't really make much sense i don't see what interest russia would have to attack this plant uh, but zelensky and other ukrainian officials they're blaming it on russia so uh mikhail ulyanov he is a russian he's russia's envoy in vienna he said on Saturday, you know, he reiterated this call for the IAEA to come in and inspect the facility. And he said that um, the IAEA officials will find who's responsible for the shelling if they come and to the facility to, to check everything out. So far, the IAEA and the UN, you know, they've been warning, calling for the fighting around the facility to stop. They want to demilitarize uh, an area around it, but they haven't assigned blame for these attacks. And the way that Western media has been reporting it, you know, if you just read a headline and the first paragraph, like most people do, of say an Associated Press story about this, you'll be led to believe that it is Russia that's been shelling this plant because they say Ukraine blames Russia, or the headline will be Ukraine and Russia trade accusations over who shelled the nuclear power plant. And then you don't learn until a few paragraphs in that Russia controls the plant and all the territory around it. I did talk about this on Friday. It's on the Dnieper River. And on one side of the river is the Zaporizhia Oblast that Russia controls. On the other side of the river is territory and cities that Ukraine controls. So it's natural that there will be some shelling across the river and fighting in the area. Um, and Russia has troops at this power plant so Ukraine also is saying that it's Russia's fault because they're drawing fire from, they're drawing fire to the plant by by launching attacks from the plant. But that all that kind of, they, they're kind of admitting that they are the ones shelling the plant by making that accusation. And we saw also on Sunday the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman she accused Western countries of delaying the IAE, IAEA visit to the plant. Because um, Russia, you know, they've been calling for this to happen for a while, and we haven't seen it happen. Um, and Zelensky, this weekend, he threatened to target Russian soldiers that are either attacking the plant or launching attacks from the plant. He said, "Quote: Every Russian every Russian soldier who either shoots at the plant or shoots using the plant as cover must understand that he becomes a special target." for our intelligence agents, for our special services, for our army, end quote. And he also 
said that this crisis, that these attacks on the plant show that the West must put more sanctions on Russia. He's using it as an opportunity to call for more sanctions, that he, he wants sanctions that would block Russia's entire nuclear industry. Um, so that is definitely something to keep an eye on because we saw more shelling just in the past couple days, and it's a very dangerous situation. Uh, the next one here, well, this is pretty interesting. Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, he did an interview with the Wall Street Journal that was published on Friday, and he warned of the dangers of U.S. policy toward Russia and China, and he put the responsibility, at least some responsibility, on the U.S. for the current situation that we are in today. He said, quote, we are at the edge of war with Russia and China on issues which we partly created without any concept of, of how this is going to end or what it's supposed to lead to, end quote. So Kissinger, he also warned against changing policy over Taiwan, and this warning comes as we just saw Nancy Pelosi visit the island, just as the U.S. is increasing support for Taiwan, which is provoking China to do more military drills, just raising tensions with China. As they're funding this proxy war on Russia's border, it's completely reckless. And I link to a piece from Caitlin Johnstone here, and her point is that, you know, you have Henry Kissinger. If Henry Kissinger, who's most known for his role as Nixon's national security advisor when he led the secret U.S. bombing campaign in Cambodia and Laos during the Vietnam War, which was just an onslaught against civilian infrastructure, all those bombing campaigns were, you know, if he's the one that's that's warning uh, that things are getting too hairy here, it's it says a lot. And we also, back in May, he made the headlines for suggesting that Ukraine should cede territory to Russia to achieve peace. And he kind of doubled down on this position in his interview with the Wall Street Journal. He said that the U.S. made a mistake in promising a future NATO membership to Ukraine. He said that he believed Poland and what he called other Traditional Western countries were logical NATO members, but he said Ukraine was different because many of its territories previously belonged to Russia. They're historically Russian. He said that he was in favor of full independence of Ukraine, but he thought it's best it would be best for its role to be something like Finland. Now, we've seen Finland has now applied to join NATO, but... Traditionally, they've been neutral between the U.S. And, and Russia, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. They were neutral during the Cold War. But now that's changing. And, you know, they share an over 800-mile border with Russia. So them joining NATO will really increase tensions in the region. But Kissinger's overall message was that the U.S. needs to accept there must be equilibrium in the world. And that, you know, the U.S. kind of has to accept that they can't control all these powers and they have to understand how to balance things and that's it really shows you know as the u.s is poking russia and and china you know of course my non-interventionist viewpoint is totally against it but even if you're more of a realist i guess and you believe in u.s global hegemony you gotta think there's a better way to, to do it than what uh the biden administration has been doing it's just escalate with everybody keep tensions high try to use force in every situation and just be completely hypocritical, too, in your comments on the world 
stage. So speaking of all that recklessness, uh, more U.S. lawmakers travel to Taiwan after Pelosi visit. So another group of U.S., another congressional delegation arrived in Taiwan on Sunday. This is only 12 days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island. It's a sign that the U.S. has no plans to ease tensions with Beijing. The delegation is being led by Senator Ed Markey, the Democrat from Massachusetts, and it's expected they arrived on Sunday. They're expected to meet with high-level Taiwanese officials, including President Tsai Ing-wen, on Monday. It's not clear exactly how long they'll be there. They're usually pretty quick, these trips. And China, as of this writing, they're probably going to release a statement pretty soon, the Chinese foreign ministry, they, but they had they didn't comment on it on the delegation when I wrote this on Sunday. But they're likely going to respond with more military exercises around Taiwan. Since Pelosi visited the island, something we've been covering a lot, China responded with its largest ever military exercises around Taiwan. And so this congressional delegation was like all the other congressional delegations we've seen besides the Pelosi one. They usually just show up unannounced. They're in Taiwan. You see a news, you see it in the news. Um, they don't announce their plans to visit Taiwan ahead of time. And Pelosi didn't either. Her plans were leaked to the press a few weeks before the trip. So that's part of the reason why there was so much drama over it because and I don't mean to use the word drama like it was kind of over-exaggerated what a provocation it was. It definitely was a major provocation. But the reason why China had this time to try to get the U.S. not to do it, try to get Pelosi not to come. And that's why we saw them warning against it for so long. We saw even saw the Biden administration warn that it could provoke a cross-strait crisis. They ultimately really backed her visit by keeping the aircraft carrier in the region and using the military to escort her plane. But there was that sense that even the Biden administration thought it was going too far. Um, but this is usually how it's done. They, they appear there. You'll see some harsh words from China and some military exercises in response. So this will be interesting to see what kind of the new norm, what the new normal is that Pelosi's trip created that Pelosi's provocation created. A lot of times they would respond to these congressional delegations just by flying planes, not really too close to Taiwan. But now we've seen just about every day since Pelosi was there, they crossed the median line that separates the Taiwan Strait. So this is just going to become normal stuff thanks to Pelosi. So the next one here, the White House says the U.S. to conduct air and maritime transits in the Taiwan Strait. So we've seen officials say this. This is an, uh, from Kurt Campbell, who is Biden's top Asia official. He is the coordinator for the Indo-Pacific on the National Security Council. He told reporters on Friday, quote, we will ensure that our presence, posture and exercise account for China's more provocative and destabilizing behavior towards guiding the situation in the Western Pacific towards greater stability, end quote. So he's saying we're going to, our posture in the region is going to, the idea of it is to create stability, even though it's just going to increase tensions even more. And it's a response to 
something that was provoked by the U.S. This is just the cycle we find ourselves in with all these situations. The U.S. does something, gets a response, and then they have to respond to the response. <laughs> um, so he said that the stepped-up U.S. presence in the region, it will conclude conducting what he calls standard air and maritime transits through the Taiwan Strait, and we're expected to see this in the coming weeks. And the U.S. typically sails a single destroyer through the strait about once a month, but I have a feeling we're going to see a bigger show of force. Campbell declined to detail what uh, type of warships that the U.S. might send, and he said that China overreacted to Pelosi's visit and claimed that there was a precedent and that the U.S. did not want to change the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. Now, this is just... We just constantly see the U.S. poke China over Taiwan and then claim that, oh, we're not trying to change the status quo. And they cite the fact that Newt Gingrich made the trip to Taiwan as a House Speaker in 1997. But 1997 was a very different time than today. One of the biggest things is just the state of U.S.-China relations. They were much better back in 97. Um, Gingrich visited China. He was in Beijing as part of his tour of Asia, where he also stopped in Taiwan. Could you imagine somebody in Congress, let alone a House speaker, going to Beijing right now? Everybody would call them, uh, tell them that they're, uh, you know, in the pocket of the Chinese government. And it was also Pelosi's visit. It followed this pattern of these increasingly frequent congressional delegations to Taiwan that we saw really start under the Trump administration and get ramped up under Biden. And China's military is much more advanced than it was in the 90s. And they've been preparing for this because the U.S. has shown that it's going to keep increasing support for Taiwan. So they weren't just going to take it lying down. And uh, so just to act like it's the U.S. isn't trying to change the status quo, it's just not true. And we've seen officials admit this. I, a quote that I often cite is Raymond Green. He's the deputy head of the de facto U.S. embassy in Taiwan. He said, you know, we used to look at Taiwan as a problem between U.S.-China relations. It was an issue between the U.S. and China, but now they see it as an opportunity to advance what they call a free and open Indo-Pacific, which is just jargon for, you know, an Indo-Pacific, an Asia-Pacific, that's free of Chinese influence, maybe not free of Chinese influence, but that's still dominated by the U.S. That's what they want. That's what this is all about. Um, and Campbell, Campbell's an interesting character. He's a he's the co-founder of the Center for a New American Security, which is a very hawkish, you know, neocon style think tank. And he worked in the State Department during the Obama administration, where he led Obama's Asia policy, known as the Pivot to Asia. And, you know, Obama really got bogged down by starting more wars in the Middle East, but he really did set us on the path that we're on now um, by starting this focus on countering China in the region. And Campbell last year, I mean, he said, this is Biden's top Asia official on the National Security Council. He said that the era of U.S. engagement with China is over. And he said that now the two countries' relationship will be defined by competition. He said this back in May 2021. So I think that's pretty significant coming from Biden's top Asia guy 
saying engagement with China is over. And we've seen efforts to sort of decouple the two economies because right now they're so reliant on each other that you can't imagine a war happening between the U.S. and China. Just be how reliant on each other we are. Um, but we're slowly seeing a decoupling. A full decoupling would take years and years, possibly decades. But this um, this is an example of it. Three. This is from Al Jazeera. Three state-owned Chinese corporate giants announced plans on Friday to remove their shares from the New York Stock Exchange. This was just a response to, you know, U.S. sanctions and scrutiny that they've come under by the U.S. They chose. They decided to remove themselves from the New York Stock Exchange. Which I think is pretty significant. Um, so we're just going to see more of this stuff as we go on. Uh, so the next one here, this we're getting into Syria. The Biden administration has restored back-channel communication with the Syrian government as part of an effort to discover the fate of Austin Tice, an American who was kidnapped in Syria in 2012 while working in the country as a freelance journalist. So this is according to a report from McClatchy, D.C., Biden hosted Tice's parents at the White House on May 2nd and told them that he directed his team to secure a meeting with top Syrian officials. Tice's parents have been calling for the U.S. to directly engage with the Syrian government. Now, Tice, um, it's a name you've probably, I'm sure you've heard if you follow anything with Syria. Biden, the U.S. claims that the Syrian government has him detained, but Syrian officials have denied this. And Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, he's never acknowledged that his government had detained Tice. He's never said it. I shouldn't have worded it like that, acknowledged. He's never said that they have Tice. His acknowledged implies that they have him, which we don't know. Um, but the U.S. is saying that they have them. And you would think if the Syrian government did have him, they would try to be using him as a bargaining chip, but they haven't really. As far as I know, there's been no public um, record of Syria saying, we'll give you Tice for this, because they don't admit, they don't say that they have him. So anyway, since hosting Tice's parents, the Biden administration has made no apparent progress on securing meetings over, over Tice. During previous negotiations in 2020 between Syria and the Trump administration, Damascus demanded as a starting point to discuss U.S. interests. They wanted the U.S. to withdraw all of its troops from Syria, lift sanctions on the country, and normalize relations to start a discussion. To start a discussion, that's that's what it would have taken to get things get the ball rolling. Uh, the U.S. maintains a small occupation force in eastern Syria of about 1,000 troops. They back the Kurdish-led SDF in the region. And the area that the U.S. occupies is where most of Syria's oil fields and wheat fields are located. And this is all part of the economic campaign against Damascus, against the Syrian government. The U.S. maintains crippling economic sanctions on Syria that are meant to prevent the country's reconstruction. Antony Blinken has said this himself. That's the purpose of the sanctions. Until there's regime change in Damascus, that's the official policy. We're keeping these sanctions in place until the government changes, until what they call it a political settlement is reached and there's elections. But it's regime change. That's that's their policy that they're following. So no wonder why the Syrian government isn't eager to engage in these talks. 
All right. The next one, speaking of Syria policy, U.S. Syria policy, there was more Israeli airstrikes in Syria that killed three Syrian soldiers. They hit Syria on Friday, wounded, killed three soldiers and wounded three others. Now, we see Syria um, bombed by Israel very frequently. Um, I mean, hundreds of airstrikes over the past few years. Um, they bomb them about once a week. Some weeks they don't bomb them, but other weeks they bomb them two or three times. Um, and this, these strikes targeted sites in the countryside around the capital, Damascus, and south of coastal Tartus province. The Syrian uh, state media, they said that Syria's air defense has intercepted some of these missiles. But this ties into the U.S. policy of sanctions and their ultimate goal of regime change, uh, even though they they have failed at regime change pretty miserably. But that still on paper is their policy. And we know that the U.S. tacitly, at least, supports Israeli airstrikes. We've seen reports that they approve some Israeli airstrikes that fly near the U, uh, U.S. military bases in Syria. They have to get signed off by the U.S. So they support these airstrikes, and it is part of the pressure campaign against Assad. Sanctions occupy the eastern portion of the country and support these airstrikes. That's the policy, not letting the country rebuild after the brutal, brutal war that they went through and depriving the Syrian population of you know, desperately needed goods and food. And it's just a really bad situation there. And it doesn't seem like it's changing anytime soon. That McClatchy report didn't say anything about Biden uh, offering to ease sanctions. He just said he's trying to talk to them. Doesn't seem like they're actually willing to make any real concessions to the Syrian government. Okay, so that's it for the news. We have a good viewpoint from Ray McGovern. Just about the China-Taiwan situation, he's asking, will China mess with the U.S. warships that are headed for the Taiwan Strait? Is China going to try to block off the strait or intercept the ships or planes that are going to go through there? I mean, we'll see. Only time will tell. But you know, there's a good chance that things really escalate further. And when you have that many military, that many planes and ships flying around, sailing around each other, it just increases the risk of an accident. Uh, but that's it for today. You guys can contact the show news at antiwar.com. You can follow me on Twitter, message me there. Uh, support the show by giving to antiwar.com, antiwar.com slash donate. Sign up for our newsletters. Those are pretty good. You get We have a daily one that gives you all these news stories and all of our viewpoints every day. And we have a weekly one that's put together that looks really nice of just the top stories of the week. But that's it for me for today. I will see you guys tomorrow. Thanks for listening.